This is Classic Business. Breakfast with MoneyWeb. Arabile Gumede and Nastasia Aronsa on Classic 1027. Welcome to it. It's uh, just gone three minutes after seven. You're listening to Classic Business Breakfast uh, with myself, Nastasia Aronsa. I'm flying solo until Wednesday. That is because uh, Arabile is in Manchester getting ready for the game on Sunday. And uh, just to let the listeners in on the bet, if uh, Man United wins, Arabile has to answer the phone on Monday morning singing Glory, Glory, Man United. And if they lose, he has to sing You'll Never Walk Alone. So uh, that should be a fun one. Uh, But nonetheless, let's uh, get the show on the road. We're going to be talking to the Automobile Association of South Africa. They've criticized the introduction of a new carbon tax on fuel, describing it as unfair for motorists and uh, consumers. So we'll speak to Leighton Beard, who's the spokesperson of uh, uh, AA. And then the uh, Banking Association of South Africa, they assess the budget on three priorities. And they're saying that uh, these priorities are important to the health of the industry and its ability to facilitate inclusive economic growth. So we'll speak to Cass Kuvadia, who's the managing director of the association. But also we'll talk about other things as well. Um, Basasa as well with uh, regards to the banks closing their accounts. We did have uh, Fawusa uh, on the line yesterday and they did express uh, dismay at this. And we'll uh, raise other issues as well with uh, Cass and hopefully he'll be able to shed some light. And then, of course, continuing with the uh, budget theme, according to Sean Miller, who's a senior lecturer at the University of Johannesburg, he's of the view that South Africa's finance minister delivered a budget that is designed to steady the ship. We'll uh, get into aspects of that as well and then end off the show with our entrepreneurship interview. We'll speak to OS Holdings and the CEO there, or rather the co-founder is Nomsa Ndeko. All of that and more is coming up. This is Classic Business. Breakfast with MoneyWeb. Arabile Gumede and Nastasia Aronsa on Classic 1027. Quick check-in on the market. Stocks in Asia declined following uh, U.S. Uh, economic data overnight that was weak. And officials in the Trump administration are continuing their ongoing trade discussions with uh, China. Uh, mainland Chinese markets uh, were lower in early trade with the Shanghai Composite declining more than 0.2%, while the Shenzhen components slipped uh, 0.2% as well. Over in Japan, the Nikkei uh, slipped three-tenths of a percent. Wall Street side, the Dow Jones fell 103 points to 25,850 as Walgreens uh, lagged and the S&P 500 dipped uh, three-tenths of a percent to 2,774, led lower by the energy and healthcare sectors. The Nasdaq Composite fell 0.4%. Meanwhile, in Europe, FTSE 100 down uh, nearly a percent. The German DAX and the French CAC were little changed. And over here, the All Share Index fell three-tenths of a percent to 55,483, and the top 40 lost 0.4%. This is Classic Business. Breakfast with MoneyWeb. Arabile Gumede and Nastasia Aronsa on Classic 1027. Six minutes after seven to uh, discuss the markets a little bit further is Gary Boyson who joins me in studio. He's a portfolio manager at Rand Swiss. Gary, there's uh, a whole host of information, a whole host of company news as we discussed uh, a little bit uh, before the show started. Which one of those do you want to start with? Now they call it a slew, a <laughs> slew of results yesterday. So we had, uh, I don't know where to start. So we had. Uh, okay, let's start with 
The ones that you liked and the ones you didn't like. The ones that I liked and the ones I didn't like. So it's difficult to say. So the ones I didn't like certainly were woolies and true words. So retailers under pressure. Now, a lot of the information that we got in these uh, updates had already been telegraphed with the the sales updates that we get normally in the the sort of Mm. mid-January. But woolies, certainly, I actually had uh, the opportunity to chat to the CEO, Ian Moore, yesterday. And uh, it's it's in a really, really difficult spot if you look at what's happening uh, with, with David Jones overseas uh, or at least in, in Australia so they had guided for headline well diluted adjusted headline earnings to be down between 7.5 and 12.5 percent uh, they came in at 9.2 so they, they matched guidance and we actually saw the stock trading up on the day so it was up uh, you know, it was up uh, you know almost three percent at one point uh, but again that David Jones operation just mm-hmm. under so much pressure you know they've already impaired uh, you know a lot of the goodwill uh, from from the deal uh, and they, you know they they just seem to be struggling to to get that business right uh, as you described. So the first two years were good, but uh, the second two years have, have required uh, significant restructuring. And obviously, with the the executive, uh, the, at least the CEO of that business resigning, uh, David Thomas, uh, he's going to be spending a lot more time as he puts it, putting his arms around the business, trying to get it right sized. Food sales were were okay; they were at least at uh, least positive. But uh, again, Woolies Apparel continues to disappoint. Uh, Truers was probably marginally better. Um, they, I suppose, they, they're more credit retailer, and yeah. they, they describe their credit book is, is still very strong. But the, the problem coming through is really in their top line growth. So just not getting the sales volume through. The, the business being run, run and managed well, but you know, without uh, the consumer managing to spend more, it's uh, it, it doesn't look like a pretty picture for retailers in South Africa. Yeah, and uh, we came out with their numbers as well. What did you make uh, of their plans? Discovery was an interesting one yeah. because they, they took a lot of flack and Adrian Gore was defending himself <laughs> on all fronts on many shows yesterday about the cost of their, their beautiful Discovery building in yes. Sanson, which I think is running at about 23 million rand a month. Um, him saying that, you know, and then obviously, you know, Coming, coming with uh, you know lower earnings as well. Mm-hmm. So, and a lot of people just looking at the the dip in earnings compared to the rental that they're paying to, <laughs> yes. to Growth Point and their partner, and uh, saying, you know, do you really need such a nice building? And him defending it and saying, you know, they were across five premises before, and uh, you know, looking at the actual cost per square meter, this is you know they couldn't have done better. But I think shareholders may be a little bit upset about that. <laughs> they they did miss, uh, however, on their their. Um, a discovery life business so they had uh, yeah they described it as uh, you know you know statistical volatility it's a one in a 20 year chance that they'll get something like this um, but I think also a little bit of concerns the actuaries might have uh, you know perhaps priced things a little bit wrong they mm-hmm. kind of described it as you know a few you know older very rich people had claims and uh, you know it, it happens and yeah. and it, it, it probably wouldn't be repeated but we'll definitely keep an eye on that uh, to make sure that the, that's uh, that is actually a one-off uh, but Otherwise, it's, it's, it's really the story of the bank. So if you look at the international businesses, you look at their local businesses, I mean, they're tra- still trading at a large premium to embedded value. So it is still an expensive stock, but you can understand why. I mean, ping on growing over 100% uh, you know, in, in a very exciting market. They, they always kind of just dipped a toe in that market. They weren't, they, it wasn't a full-blown strategy like some of the other um, South African companies that have gone on international expansions to their detriment. Yeah. Um, they've done it very, very 
smartly and um, and it seems to be paying off and and I think it it is an exciting business bringing that vitality model in you know and making it global I think there's huge opportunity there and it's one of the reasons the stock trades at such a premium uh, the stock was uh, you know up on the day it was up about half a percent so mark I think a lot of the the, the news in there especially around the bank migrating three hundred thousand uh, mm. credit cards as well uh, from the f and b jV into into their own bank which will you know be a kind of a, a phased in approach over the next uh, year or so it looks good it looks like a, a company that uh, does look like an earnings blip this this this, this reporting season but yeah. it looks like a company moving from strength to strength apart from company uh, numbers your overall assessment of yesterday's market performance I mentioned earlier the all share falling three tenths of a percent so it was an interesting moves yesterday because you had we're obviously coming off the budget as well so the, as, the, as the budget was released and that full text came out at 2 o'clock you saw the rand spike mm-hmm. up to kind of 14.28 and then you, we saw a strong reversal yesterday so we saw that around I believe it was low as 13.80 at one point and it was kind of dipping below that level and I think everyone was getting very optimistic mm-hmm. that you know if you kind of look at the technicals or pick, picture, the, at least the technical picture on the rand it could be a lot stronger than this and, and I think that's where you got this big push into the banks and, mm. and kind of South Africa Inc. Uh, on the on the back of that, you also had a couple of uh, resource companies resulting. We had uh, results at least. So we had Anglo-American, we had yeah. Sabanya as well. Um, the miners and especially the gold miners down heavily yesterday. So we had the likes of Anglo Gold losing 3.5%, Goldfields down, you know, 3.67%. So, you know, a lot of pressure coming through on the resources, partly fueled by what was expected to be a, a stronger currency. I think it's now back to 14. So mm. Rand, you know, continuing to plague uh, equity trade but uh, yeah, it, it it was a busy day, and uh, and overall, yeah, I think positive for for SA Inc. Um, yeah, a little bit more negative for the the Rand hedge stocks. All right, so you know uh, what I found interesting is that uh, in twenty in the beginning of this year, we had a whole host of financial institutions and asset managers talking about the risks you can expect for twenty nineteen, or at least the risks they're quite they're, they're looking at. But over uh, on the U.S. side of things. Everybody was wondering whether the Fed Reserve will inter- will increase interest rates for this year. And I think that was a question which even the Fed officials couldn't even answer as well because they didn't know exactly what's going to happen. And then you have the um, minutes that came out of the FOMC that slightly dovish. But now, does that fuel speculation that we might get a possible cut in the distant future considering some of the unfavorable global macroeconomic conditions and the weak numbers that are coming um, out of the U.S.? I mean, how are you viewing the Fed at this point? As you say, coming into the year, we were, you know, the Fed was was very hawkish. I mean, we were expecting that that kind of rate path to 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 continue to tick up. And uh, but as you say, even the Fed officials don't know. And the way that they they telegraph that to the market is by saying it's all data dependent, mm. and it depends what's going on. Uh, and I mean, they technically should be looking at the fundamental economic data in the U.S. And U.S. unemployment is strong, growth rates are strong. There's no reason why we shouldn't have expected that to to continue to move higher. We obviously got the wobbles on the stock market. Yeah. They were calling uh, red October, and then you know December was also very very uh, volatile uh, on equity markets, and that that technically shouldn't change the you know the Fed's outlook, but but certainly we've seen uh, expectations of of rate increases in the U.S. moderating significantly, and uh, I'm, I'm just pulling up my FedWatch tool, which uh, gives me the exact <laughs> yes. it's, it's 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 basically it's a tool where you can see the exact probability of of rate hikes, and it's yeah. kind of priced priced daily, so you will get uh, an exact idea of where it is. 
moment we're expecting, you know, certainly no change now if we look out to the end of the year. Um, it has been up until now very much, uh, you, you know, pricing and no, no movement at all. There was a slight chance of a cut, but it was around 20%. Uh, currently, if you look out to the December meeting, there's an 87% chance that uh, interest rates will be flat uh, in the U.S., mm. with a 7.4% chance that they might uh, give us a, a little bit of relief. But as they say, it will all be data dependent. All right. Gary Boyson still joins us throughout the show. Let's take a quick break. Every morning, Arabile Gomede and Anastasia Aronsa on Classic Business. Breakfast with MoneyWeb. It's 15 minutes after 7. The Automobile Association of South Africa has criticized the introduction of a new carbon tax on fuel, describing it as unfair for motorists and consumers. The tax was introduced uh, by Finance Minister Tito Mboweni during his budget speech, which was presented on Monday, rather on Wednesday. But uh, to talk to us about it is Leighton Beard, who's a spokesperson at AA. Leighton, thank you so much for your time this morning. You're disappointed at the introduction of this new carbon tax. Explain to me the, I suppose, the implications it has for motorists and consumers. Hi, Anastasia. Uh, I mean, basically, our concern is that another level of tax has been added to the fuel price. Uh, we already have the general fuel levy. We have the road accident fund levy. And now we have another tax that's been added to the fuel price. And it's another blow to motorists and to consumers in general. Um, what this means is is that um, instead of having, um, you know, three taxes, the, the, G, the, the general fuel and the RAF levies and customs and excise on the fuel tax, another tax has been added. And it just appears to us that it's, you know, the fuel price is an easy tax um, to collect. And it's a go-to tax for government. So, you know, when, when uh, revenue is sought, obviously, let's add it to the to, to fuel price. And our concern stems from the fact that this is not just uh, adding to that. But are there any sort of low-hanging fruits in order to bring in, you know, much-needed revenue for the tax man? I mean, from your perspective, the way you even looked at the budget, I mean, did it even meet your expectations? Yeah, I think, look, you know, in, in a sense, we, we, we welcome the fact that the general fuel levy and the road accident fund levy didn't increase by more than inflation. Um, there was speculation before the budget that that may happen. And, and we've seen uh, from past experience that um, both of those levies, you know, increased sometimes by quite big margins. So um, <clears throat> our concern is, is that motorists and consumers are seen as an easy, uh, an easy way to collect tax. Uh, and our concern stems from the fact that um, these people are already under a lot of financial pressure. It's not only motorists that are affected by this. Um, you know, when retailers and manufacturers have to start paying the, the, the carbon tax um, when it's introduced in June, it means that those costs are going to be passed on to consumers as well. So, you know, because input costs increase, those have to be passed on to consumers. So it really is, in our opinion, an unfair tax because it's just another layer that consumers who are already financially embattled now have to carry as well. So we started this year with a relatively smooth uh, takeoff in terms of, you know, fuel prices. But are you concerned that perhaps uh, they may not be a guarantee towards the end of the year that prices will remain as flat as they currently are. I mean, what do your uh, forecasts look like for this point? 
Yeah, it's a very difficult thing to speculate on what's happening with the fuel price in the next month, um, let alone what's going to happen at the end of the year. Uh, you remember that the fuel price is determined by two major factors, um, the one being the Rand US dollar exchange rate, the other being international petroleum prices. Um, already towards the end of uh, uh, February going into March, we are predicting or we are seeing the numbers indicating that a, quite a sizable increase is on the cards, 50 cents or more maybe. So um, already going into, into March, the, the outlook doesn't look great. We've come off the back of relatively good numbers. We had uh, a big decrease in December. We had a big decrease in January. February saw a very marginal increase, but I think that slowly that picture is changing. Obviously, if the RAND strengthens against the US dollar and if these international petroleum prices flatten out, uh, that picture could change by the end of the month going into the new month. Um, but at the moment, the picture is quite bleak in terms of getting an increase. Um, how that's going to look uh, towards the end of the year, uh, I mean, you know, I'll, I'd need a crystal ball uh, to do that. And if I had one of those, I'd use it for our numbers, I'm afraid. <laughs> Everyone we've had on the show talking about the budget, we've had them uh, rated out of 10. So what would you uh, give it? Look, I think that would be unfair. And uh, <laughs> I mean, I think on the whole, um, it was a difficult budget to deliver by the finance minister. I think um, it's not an easy economic environment. Um, I think given the fact that, uh, um, you know, he had a lot of other pressures that were bearing down on him, he obviously had to do what he could, what he had. Mm-hmm. Um, I think our focus really has been on how this affects motorists and consumers in the long run. Um, I think we are disappointed by the fact that uh, we've had this new tax added to the fuel price. But, you know, to temper that, we are quite encouraged by the fact that the other two levies didn't increase by more than inflation. So, I mean, if you had to ask me for a number out of 10, I'd probably say around about a set. All right, Leighton, thank you so much for your time. That's Leighton Baird, who's the spokesperson at AA. Time to have a look at traffic. Every morning, Arabile Gumede and Anastasia Aronsa on Classic Business. Breakfast with MoneyWeb. 22 minutes after 7, the Banking Association of South Africa assessed the budget on three priorities, which the association says are important to the health of the industry and its ability to facilitate inclusive economic growth and social development in the country. To talk to us a little bit more on the, the budget is Cass Kavadia, who's the Managing Director at the association. Cass, thank you so much for your time this morning. Perhaps briefly you can uh, take us through these three priorities that you think are important uh, when you look at the budget. Oh, um, thanks for having us. Uh, look, I think that what we try to concentrate on related to the budget it is the three issues that are, in our view, important to this country. One is economic growth, and we've said that uh, it's absolutely that we concentrate on economic growth. And the second one is social development, because we've always said that we need inclusive growth so as to address the social issues and ensure that those who are excluded from the economy have a stake in it. Uh, and then we talking about institutions and so on. Now, I think that the minister had to deliver his budget under a very difficult time. He acknowledged that we are in serious problems when it comes to the economy. And I think that there were moves to begin to address some of the fiscal issues. Uh, he had very little space on the income side, 
but on the expenditure side, he has started a process to look at uh, reducing the public sector wage bill, uh, and and he's done that in a way that starting was was retire, uh, retiring people, and and then moving on from there. I think that the SOE issue. There was no doubt that some money had to be put into these SOEs, uh, and he has uh, set some conditions for the utilization of, the, of those monies. And, and the ESCOM issue is the condition is that the money actually is used to uh, implement the decision in SONA that uh, ESCOM needs to be restructured. Uh, other SOEs, he said that they have to have a, a, a restructuring officer in place uh, before they get get the money. Uh, so, so I think that he's done the best he can in a number of these areas. I, I also think that the move in SARS to actually fix SARS up is a good good news story. Uh, he's increased social expenditure. Uh, the issue now is that we need to ensure that we spend this money properly. Uh, and, and we just haven't been able to do that up to now. And, and if we don't do that, then, then I think that there are problems. So I think that overall, uh, uh, I think it's the best he could do under the circumstances. Right. Uh, he also I, I indicated that the private sector is the central pillar for growth, and uh, what we would want to now see is a more structured relationship between the private sector and government, and instead of the private sector being uh, the bogeyman, that the private sector is a significant uh, player in this country, and we need to leverage on the private sector. Uh, so, So I think that, you know, is it a good budget? Uh, it's not a good budget in the sense that, that we, we have had to put money into SOEs. We haven't been able to move decisively on the expenditure side. But I think that it's a pragmatic budget. And, and again, as is so often the case in the country, the proof of it will be in the pudding. Uh, we need to ensure that we stick to these conditions. We need to ensure that we are absolutely robust in the way we deal with the SOEs. Uh, and, and we need to ensure that uh, we bring all the resources in the country to bear to actually address some of these issues instead of actually continuing to throw bricks at each other. Right. So Moody's came out with uh, a statement yesterday and they are saying that obviously there was a lack of detail when it came to the ESCOM rescue plan. And they are warning that, you know, this seems to be indicative of a deterioration of public finances. From the association's point of view, are you concerned about our ratings? We are concerned. I mean, if Moody's comes out and says that immediately after the budget, that is extremely concerning. I, I agree. I think that, that we now need, in a public and transparent way, significant detail on the restructuring of ESCOM. Uh, I think we need significant detail on, on exactly how the 23 billion rand a year is going to be utilized. And that has to be transparent and public. Uh, public needs to be taken into confidence, and there needs to be a direct link between money being put into ESCOM and the restructuring process and so that 
public can see, rating agencies can see, potential funders can see that the money is being utilized to actually begin to address some of the structural problems that ESCOM and not being utilized just for operational costs that goes into a structure that's not working. So I, I think that, that Moody is correct, but I, I'm not too sure there were too many other choices, also given that we a few months away from an election. Uh, so, so you know, the, the political pragmatism needs to be taken into account. I think that the fact that, that SAVI, the fact that there's conditions set to the SOE funding, I think the fact that there's some movement on the expenditure side, uh, all of those under the difficult conditions of uh, political uncertainties to as a result of some of the problems in the ANC in the run-up to the elections, I think that one needs to be pragmatic about this, and we hope that Moody's will be. I, I think they've been very uh, accommodating of South Africa. I, 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 I would uh, hope that they continue to be accommodating and give us a few months, particularly post-elections, to implement these. And, and then the, the ball is in our court. If we don't actually show that sort of detail, and the detail needs to be shown now, not after elections, and if we don't implement as the minister said we should implement, then, then I think we've got serious problems. Cass, thank you so much for your time this morning. That's Cass Cavadio, the Managing Director at the Banking Association of South Africa. And just as a side note, the National Union of Metal Workers of South Africa also responded to the budget and uh, ESCOM uh, yeah, with an angry statement rather saying that they are demanding the resignation of Public Enterprises Minister Praveen Gadan. The union threatened um, a total shutdown over ESCOM calling on rival union federation Kasati to put aside the differences to defend ESCOM and all state-owned companies. So that's a story we'll definitely keep an eye on. Nonetheless, let's have a look at news headlines. Every morning, Arabile Gomede and Anastasia Aronsa on Classic Business. Breakfast with MoneyWeb. It's 7.32. Uh, Sean Miller is a senior lecturer in economics and research associate at the University of Johannesburg. Is of the view that uh, uh, South Africa's finance minister, Tito Mboweni's budget presentation was uh, designed to steady the ship. And he's on the line right now to talk to us a little bit more about his views on that budget. Uh, Sean, thank you so much uh, for your time. It was uh, it wasn't the longest speech. I mean, I think it was eighteen pages, if I'm not mistaken. But uh, what did you think of the overall content of the that speech? Uh, good morning. Thanks for having me. Um, yeah. Well, the speech itself, as always, is um, quite a superficial summary of what's actually in the budget review. And yes, the minister was trying to stabilise the ship, as most of his predecessors have been trying to do. Um, since at least about 2014. The disconcerting thing is that each year, each budget or each medium-term budget policy statement, we seem to miss the targets that were set in the previous budget or previous medium-term budget, um, sometimes when it comes to the deficit or the budget balance, um, and pretty much always when it comes to stabilizing the debt-to-GDP ratio. So that is a concern. Right. A lot of people who, you know, responded to it thought, yes, he, you know, the minister was uh, balancing a tight rope and he had a lot of people to, uh, I suppose, make happy. But uh, 
in the overall, the background is that we have low economic growth. And as a result, tax revenue, um, there are some shortfalls. There's a whole host of things that sort of feed into each other. And when you look at the proposals that were tabled, were there a good enough response to the current situation? What are you looking for perhaps even post uh, the elections when it comes to um, the political will to enforce some of these uh, concerns or some of the solutions to alleviate the concerns? Yes, there's no doubt that it's a very difficult situation, and, and in these kinds of situations, there are always going to be some decisions that make uh, some groups unhappy. I think you're right that the, the main drivers are low economic growth, um, revenue shortfalls, partly because of economic growth, but partly also because of problems in tax administration, especially under the previous tax commissioner. And in addition to that, we're seeing the the risks from state-owned enterprises that previously were, shall we say, creatively pushed off the main government, government balance sheet um, in line with international practice, essentially supporting these state-owned enterprises to do their own borrowing rather than borrowing for them through, through the national balance sheet. But now what we're seeing is that those, those risks and those contingent liabilities are kind of finding their way back onto to the national budget. Um, my main concern in terms of the decisions the Treasury has been making and the Minister of Finance, the different Ministers of Finance have been making is around the compensation budget. Right now, it seems to be a very... It, it, on the, it sounds strange to say it's an easy place to cut because we know that the unions are quite resistant to cuts in, in, in either wage levels or, or in employee numbers. But it's an easy place to cut in the sense that we're not really very well informed about what the consequences are. And one of the issues is that I think we need to move away from this notion of managing the public sector wage bill as if it's this homogenous entity and that it's always a good thing to be bringing it down. The reality is that the public sector wage bill um, is at the core of the functioning of the state. Civil servants are paid through the wage bill and only with civil servants can the state serve individuals and, and indeed firms in the private sector. So when we when we hear these plans, we know that posts have already been reduced. Um, the, the Treasury document said by about 16,000 at national level, I think it's closer to about 50,000 at, at provincial level. You know, at provincial level, a lot of the posts involve education and healthcare. So the presumption should be the individual citizens are probably getting lower quality uh, service delivery than they did in the past. And in particular, with this new plan to try and retire 30,000 civil servants between 50, ages of 55 and 59, there's very little detail on what occupations are going to be retired. What is the quality of these individuals? And the danger is you might actually lose the most important and the best quality civil servants because those are the ones who can leave and find alternative uh, employment as consultants and so forth. Um, so I think we, we need a lot more information from the Treasury and the Ministry of Finance and perhaps the Department of Public Service and Administration on the implications of the successive cuts actually to public sector employment. Were there aspects of uh, the budget speech that you liked in terms of proposals that may be seen as progressive? Um, there, there were some. There were always some because part of the... I think we need to be clear. None of this is really a criticism of, of the National Treasury and the Ministry of Finance. Their job is to put together as good a budget as they can, stabilize public finances, and sell it as best they can. And sometimes selling it involves having uh, initiatives that, that are notionally progressive. So one is uh, an increased uh, allocation of funds to providing free sanitary pads to learners at, um, at low-income schools. Um, there are a couple of others that, uh, that slip my mind. But the, the thing is that, oh, 
A good one, a good, a good symbolic change is the freezing of salaries for members of the national and provincial legislatures and some state executives. That's good because it sends a signal that our political leaders, effectively our political representatives, are also willing to make some sacrifices in a context where everybody's making sacrifices, as for example has been the case with the one percentage point increase in, in value added appears that, that it will continue. So all citizens are, are paying more tax. Um, we know that, uh, that income earning citizens have also had their tax rates increased. We know that the state, uh, something that hasn't been spoken about much. So, so the state is trying to go with measures that they are paying for, but the pain doesn't seem so bad because, because of the way it's framed. So for example, there's no new tax to, in, to, to raise an extra 10 billion but the state is not adjusting the tax brackets. And by doing that through inflation, it will claw back an extra approximately 10 billion uh, in tax revenue. So these are the kinds of measures that are, that are, that are being used to either send uh, a, a symbolic message um, or to try and uh, minimize the sense that, that we're in a difficult situation and, and, and that people are, are suffering, I suppose, or incurring extra costs. But when you step back from, from the actual numbers, the, 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 the numbers for these additional progressive measures are extremely small. You know, I think it's about 157 million total for the free sanitary pads. And, and you know, so it's a great initiative, but at the same time, it's a, it's a drop in the ocean when it comes to 23 billion rand a year for ESCOM or 50 billion rand in cuts to the public sector wage bill over the medium term. Right. Everyone we've had on the show has rated uh, the budget speech out of 10 and given it a score. What would your rating be? I would say about 6.5. 6.5. But, <laughs> but to be fair, in a difficult situation. All right. The highest rating we've gotten so far was uh, 7 out of 10. So 6.5, I think the minister can live with that for now. Sean, thank you so much for your time. That is Sean Miller, who is the Senior Lecturer in Economics and Research Associate at the University of Johannesburg. Let's have a look at traffic. Every morning, Arabile Gomede and Anastasia Aronsa on Classic Business. Breakfast with MoneyWeb. At 7.42, time for our entrepreneurship feature. And this time we have Nomsa Ndeleko, who's the co-founder and MD of OS Holdings. And uh, she joins us now on the line. Now, OS Holdings is a consulting firm that uh, cultivates and deploys young talent and inspires uh, customers through understanding their needs. Nomsa, thank you so much for your time this morning. I gave a brief description uh, description of uh, the company, but perhaps you can expand a little bit as to who is uh, OS Holdings and what exactly do you do? Thank you very much. Um, I really appreciate being in the show this morning. Um, OS Holdings is a 100% owned company. Uh, we are an ERP and business management consulting firm. So basically we implement ERP systems financial management systems as well as business systems for different organizations to help them achieve their strategic objectives. Now, what we've done uh, in the past two years, we started developing our own system or our own softwares uh, to uh, integrate with many financial management systems, including your Sage. Uh, Sage is our partner, so we are a Sage uh, business partner.
Right. So um, how did the idea come about uh, to put OS Holdings together? Um, I must say that I've always had great love for IT and accounting because I believe that marrying the two can assist a lot of businesses in terms of succeeding and in terms of simplifying their internal business processes. So I worked for Sage, and the reason I worked for Sage was to purely understand the different products that they offer, but most importantly, understand the type of a client I would have to assist. You know, coming from Sibuking as a, as a woman who was uh, born in a village and raised in a township, you find that you don't have an in-depth understanding of the nature of the client you'd want to serve. So working for Sage for me was really an eye-opener and it gave me a great uh, uh, insight of what I loved doing. So 2012, after working for Sage for five years, I opened uh, OS Holdings. And my focus then was uh, purely focusing on local government and state-owned uh, enterprises. And that's because at that particular time, they were really struggling in terms of reporting on their financial management, as well as managing procurement. You know, at that particular time, you had a lot of uh, reports about wasteless and fruitless expenditure, where municipalities and state-owned entities were really having a hard time in managing their budget and ensuring that the money that is entrusted to them actually achieves service delivery. So that's really where my passion was at that particular moment. But as uh, a technology company, you grow, we've started also servicing big, big private sector organizations that are in the manufacturing as well as um, in, in, in the service space. What were the early days of the business like? Do you remember? Sure. <laughs> they were quite hectic. I mean, um, when I started, I started in my flat, a uh, two-bedroom flat, uh, with a friend of mine. Her name is Namshang Nyogana. She's now based in the Eastern Cape. And uh, we roped in my niece uh, to do admin. So that's really where we started. And um, getting business for the first year was really a hard, ta- a, a hard task, purely because as much as we're very knowledgeable, about what we were trying to achieve, organizations will come and say, the finance, the finance department is a very strategic and a very important department uh, within any organization. So how do we entrust two young women with such a mammoth task who just started a company you know, a, 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 this year? So the first year was really difficult. We really had to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that we understood what we were doing. We, 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 we believed in our product and we could deliver because we're talking about projects that are more than hundreds of thousands. And therefore, for any organization uh, to invest in a company like ours, we had to prove beyond reasonable doubt that we will deliver the solution we promised. 
Most businesses, uh, when they start out, I suppose probably in the, a year or two, they all go into some kind of incubation or they work with an organization that helps them uh, either propel their product or service to the next level that helps in terms of financing and any kind of mentorship that you might need as somebody who's leading that startup. Did you get uh, similar assistance? Not in the first two to three years. Um, the only time we joined an incubation company, it was uh, 2017, with Corp. And I think for me, um, it was important that I get an objective view to look into my business. Because as an entrepreneur, you are your own boss. You, 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 you write your own rules. So it is important to have a third person looking in so that they can assist if there are any challenges if uh, there are processes that you're not following, and also to help you scale your business because there is the greater challenge to say, yes, we are growing, and with growing of the business, there's so many challenges that you come across, uh, that what they call growing pains, be it financially, be it with the expert skill that you need, and be it ensuring that each and every division of the company is running efficiently. So that's where then RaceCorp came in. They assisted us in terms of strategy, in terms of uh, internal processes, in terms of sales, etc. Right. So any entrepreneur, I mean, most of the ones we've had on the show, will uh, talk to us about some of the mistakes they made and that they learned from. Are there ones that come to mind or perhaps one lesson uh, that you learned throughout your entrepreneurship journey, which uh, stays with you, I suppose? I think for me... It is very important to manage growth. Growth is very good for any company, but if you're growing too quickly and uh, too big, you can make great mistakes where you may uh, underprice. You know, we went into projects where we underquoted, so we ended up uh, paying so much more than what we got out of the project. But that was a huge school fees for me to say it's important to grow organically. And when you're growing organically, you are able to keep your eye on each and every aspect of the business. That was very important. Secondly, it's very important to choose the partners that you work with in your business because some partners can just come and they purely take. You want partners that will complement your business and that are of the same vision as you not necessarily just the same vision, but the same values, you know, because there's a, a huge value system that um, helps the business grow. So that was the big lesson. Choose the right partners. Don't grow too fast. If you grow too fast, just make sure that you have the right people around you to assist you in terms of growth. All right. So what's next uh, for OS Holdings? What do you uh, plan in terms of, I suppose, the short to medium term? Um, I mean, if you look into the IT space, um, even even our government is talking about uh, gearing towards the fourth industrial revolution. So as a South African, as a black child, my, my I'm asking myself to say, how do we then partake in the fourth industrial revolution as an IT company. So because of this, we've started to build our own systems. We've started to build our own tools. I mean, um, there's a lot of value in big data. 
how do we take big data and produce um, information that will assist businesses? Let me make an example. Most of the time, organizations will sit in a boardroom and um, uh, go through a, a board meeting. And in a board meeting, what organization addressing are the past reports and the past mistakes? So with big data and the solutions that we've crafted for all holdings, we look into the future, the future trends, you know, how do we assist the business to continue to innovate and to continue to take advantage of the information provided by their big data to their to to to, to give value into that particular business. So we're developing our own solutions. We've developed another tool that uh, focuses on the infrastructure procurement for public sector. I think it's an amazing system that will assist government in terms of procuring responsibly and managing the procurement and ensuring that they get value for the money that they spend. So we're quite excited about becoming part of you know, the big um, IT world. So yeah, that's, that's basically it. All right, Nomsa, thank you so much uh, for your time and we wish you all your best. Uh, that is uh, Nomsa Ndeleko, who is the co-founder and MD of OS Holdings. Every morning, Arabile Gomede and Anastasia Aronsa on Classic Business. Breakfast with MoneyWeb. It's uh, seven minutes to eight o'clock. Yesterday, Arabile was absolutely excited after Samsung Electronics revealed a whole new phone. And it's one of those phones that, uh, so I brought up the story, I think about two or three months ago. And I said, Samsung was launching this phone and it has, uh, you can pretty much unfold it. And Arabile said to me off air that he didn't get excited about it back then when I first mentioned it because I described it as though it was a simple Motorola, as though we had gone back to the early 2000s. But after he had seen the video, he was absolutely impressed. Now, the starting price for this phone, Gary, I don't know if you're into this thing. So the starting price is $750 and obviously you get to uh, nearly $2,000 for the fold up version. Were you as impressed and as excited as Arabili may have been? I think everyone, everyone who likes technology was excited by that phone. Um, but it looks strange if you if you haven't seen it. It, it. it looks it does look like one of those old. I think it's a Nokia communicator almost, <laughs> yeah. except obviously really sleek. And it just like it kind of worries me that the screen's going to rub against the two screens are going to rub against each other and get scratched. But obviously they're not. So hmm. I feel like I have to go and play with it in a store. Uh, but it looks <laughs> it looks very impressive. I mean. Looking at the write-ups, would you pay two thousand dollars? Would you pay thirty, close to thirty grand for a phone? You see, the one thing Apple has managed to do is make us fall in love with the ecosystem of being able to connect to all of their devices, and that's the reason why I suppose Team Apple won me over because I used <laughs> to have an Android. Believe it or not, I actually did, and now I can't see myself going back. So when I saw the video and I saw the launch, and I said to myself, Tim Cook is probably a little shook. <laughs> but hmm. nonetheless, I'm optimistic that they're going to come up with the next level of something else. I don't know. Yeah, I see Tash sitting opposite <laughs> me with her, her MacBook. Uh, there's no way you're getting out of that ecosystem. But they said that Apple will probably only come with a, a competing uh, a yeah. foldable phone probably in 2020. So Apple users might have a little bit of time to wait. Because I think this is being released 26th of April. Uh, we'll get to go and play with the, the new Samsung Fold. And it does. It looks impressive. And, you know, the, the kind of commentary around the phone is that they really have taken it to the next level. Yeah. So yeah, everyone 
everyone kind of thought that, you know, we, we had those old candy bar phones before Apple launched, mm. you know, the first iPhone. And yeah. it, it really, it, you know, we thought that the market was saturated and, uh, you know, it, there, there was there was nothing new. But uh, I think Samsung's just proved that the innovation is coming from the east at the moment and that mm. there's huge, huge potential to expand if you come to the market with the real new product and not just a, a slight upgrade. So, I mean, I think any concerns that this phone is not going to fly off shelves, it, it's a completely different looking thing. It's a new device altogether. And I mean, we've tried all the wearable tech as, as ways to boost sales mm. for these technology companies, but but certainly a folding phone is is pretty exciting. But here's my thing, and especially when you look at Apple. So they launched their new phones late last year. But what they got out of that was a 15% drop in iPhone revenue. And the concern was because um, China and the economy and various other aspects. And then it then raised uh, concerns that perhaps, you know, the Chinese market, uh, people are not upgrading, they're holding on to their old phones. And now I'm wondering if um, Samsung's launching a phone that costs $2,000, are they not going to go through the same problems mm-hmm. Apple did with the Chinese markets where people are just want to, you know, they want to hold on to their devices for longer? They're not upgrading. It, it, it is. I mean, that's, that's certainly it's interesting you bring that up because if you look at it, because it's a completely new form factor, that's why they think that it'll be a little bit more successful. So what, what's happened, there's certainly been a trend of people holding on to their phones for longer and longer because a phone essentially, each, each upgrade that we've seen, whether it's Apple or, or, or Samsung or um or any other handset, it's it's slow iterations. It's the camera's a little bit better, but the actual style of the phone doesn't change. And even with the iPhone X, it didn't significantly change the look of the phone. Mm. And you know, it didn't give you completely new functionality. It wasn't a totally different product. And I think this being just as different, as it's going to stand out. I mean, yeah. you're going to see that person has it. That, it's, <laughs> it's good. It's going to be phone envy again. Whereas you, you, if I'm holding up my phone to Dash, can you tell me what kind of phone this is? <laughs> like you can't because yeah. they they all. Start starting to look the same but this is something totally different and i think that's that's why i think you know it is experimental in the, in the fact that you're now going to be able to fold out and have a, a much larger display and you're going to charge your watch off and all sorts of things but um it uh, they're certainly testing the waters with with new pricing points i mean mm. they're breaking ground on how expensive you can make a mobile <laughs> device but speaking of brands uh and we've got like a minute and a half you picked up a site that has like cool brands oh no this wasn't a site this was actually it's one of your your other guests byron Lotta came out with huh. a, a brand video so there's like i've actually retweeted it so if you guys want to check it out it's on twitter but it's actually amazing so it's a you know, we we saw it, it like there's there's a, a separate video, a very similar concept yeah. where it, it kind of plays aggressive music, and you see the, the 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 each bar of the different countries kind of accelerating, and you kind of see the the rapid you know America kind of taking the top and mm. moving along as their GDP grows, and then China kind of rapidly ra- jumping up the ranking table and growing uh, and expanding. Now someone's created a very similar video just for for brands, and it just goes through probably the last yeah just just the last twenty years of how brands are actually. Ha- are appreciating in value and I mean it started 20 years ago with Coca-Cola and Microsoft IBM as yeah. the most powerful uh, brands in, in in the world and you suddenly just see these tech phone, uh, these tech companies and you suddenly see Google moving up the rankings and, and, and Apple just you know in the, yeah. in the last couple of years just the launch of one product and suddenly you see the the, the brand value absolutely escalate and we've got the, the three most powerful brands in the world at the moment um, or three three best global brands as Apple is, is still number one so mm-hmm. I'll, I'll give your, your Apple's <laughs> are still the best yes. brand. Google is a close second uh, with Amazon. But you, you're seeing Samsung, if you look at the last couple of years, just accelerating up the ranking table so quickly. So 
Maybe the fold phone is what's going to take it to the top. All right. Uh, you can follow Gary at uh, Gary Boyson on Twitter and have a look at that video. That's it from me. We'll be back on Monday ready to call Arabile. And Gary? It's 8 o'clock.